Welcome to Quest for Gold, our first episode of 2020. We are now less than 200 days until the opening ceremonies in Tokyo, kicking off the 2020 Summer Olympics. This week, Japan showed off its new cardboard box beds for athletes. That's right, 18,000 athletes of the Games will be sleeping on beds supported by recycled cardboard frames. The frames are said to hold athletes up to 440 pounds, well over what any athlete weighed in the 2016 Games. It's part of Japan's effort to throw a more environmentally friendly Olympics. The Olympic torch will be made from recycled aluminum. 2020 is also an election year in the United States, and some prominent former figure skaters have already started campaigning for their favorite candidates. Two-time Olympic medalist Michelle Kwan has joined former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign. 2018 bronze medalist Adam Rapon, who we spoke with in episode 14 of Quest for Gold, has thrown his support behind Senator Elizabeth Warren. Don't expect too many current Olympic athletes to weigh in politically ahead of the Games. There are strict regulations against political statements by Team USA athletes. Underway right now in Tampa, Florida, training camp for the U.S. women's national soccer team. When camp wraps up on January 15th, new head coach Vladko Andonovsky will set his 2020 player roster for the Olympics. Among the Chicago Red Stars at the camp, Tierna Davidson, Alyssa Nayer, and Julie Ertz. The Red Stars also making news this week, announcing they've traded for Kalia Ohai, who has made previous appearances on the women's national team. Ohai is actually blind in one eye. She's also the girlfriend of NFL star J.J. Watt. We talked with the U.S. women's soccer team about the Olympics. Neher Ertz and Rapino weigh in on episode 12 of Quest for Gold. This week, our sports spotlight is cycling. The Midwest may be known for football, baseball, wrestling, and basketball, but did you know a world-renowned cycling family has also sprouted from the flatlands of suburban Chicago? Raised in Glen Ellen, John Vandeveld was a cycling Olympian in 1968 and 1972 before turning pro. His son Christian followed in his father's tread, competing in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney and then again in 2008 in Beijing in cycling. He also competed multiple times in the Tour de France, including on teams that helped bring Lance Armstrong to victory in 1999 and 2001. Those titles were later stripped. He's now retired from cycling, but is still very active in the sport and will be part of the Cycling Olympic broadcast team for NBC this summer. You obviously have come from a family of cyclers. How how did you get into the sport? How did you fall in love with the sport? Uh, Just looking up to my father. You know, my, my father was was my hero as a kid as, as most kids look up to their dads and um, Breaking Away a movie that he was in as one of the, the bad guys in Shizano, um came out when I was four or five years old so watching that and then having all the people coming through the house and of course my uncle and my grandpa all riding bikes it was I was doomed to just into their footsteps for better or for worse. You grew up in Illinois, in suburban Chicago. Is that a big cycling community? Was your family able to make that a cycling community? Uh, they had a little bit. And, you know, in, in the Western Burbs, they, they had a, a good core group of guys that have been riding bikes together. Um, I think it was called the Southwestern Wheelman way back when. And so they had a nice group ride that started at 5.30 in the morning, depending on it. Daylight hours, and they'd start with lights on their bikes, and so they had a good core group. But no, growing up where I was, I was in Lamont, so there's another twenty some miles south of that. No, I had nobody to ride with. I rode with my dad and my dad alone, and later on, my sister started riding a little bit, and once a while, my brother. But for the most part, no, it was 
it was a solo mission out on out on the, the flat roads of Plainfield and Lockport, <laughs> wherever I could go to find a, a road without too much traffic. Yeah, you don't you don't have to worry about elevation, but once again, <laughs> you know that's that's obviously an issue. I mean, the, the people who grew up in mountains or at least near you know some some different terrains uh, may have an advantage, I suppose. Um, but I I don't know. I mean, when you when you reflect back on that, do you think uh, that that hindered or helped you in any way? Um. The, the weather was honestly not great, you know, and that, that was one of the harder things. So I did a lot of a lot of training indoors um, on the stationary trainer, things like that in the gym. Um, but no, the, of course, there's no elevation, which was fun to go fast, but it didn't improve any of my skills, whether that be climbing or descending, things that I had to learn a little bit later in life when I moved out to Colorado. But, you know, I think the biggest thing positive would be that um, – I appreciated good weather so much more than everyone else from California or Arizona or Florida, the guys who get to train year-round. Um, so I always, always had a smile on my face when the weather was about 50 degrees, whereas, you know, I'd be out there in 18 degrees and 20 degrees out there by myself, questioning what am I doing with my life, and, and then I get into good weather, and I appreciate every day that I have. You competed at a, a very high level internationally. Where is the Olympics as far as the competition, the exposure, uh, the TV time? Where is that at in the sport compared to some of these European tours? I mean, when people look at the Olympics, that's the peak of the sport. Is it kind of mid-range? Where, where are the Olympics at? You, you competed twice in them. Yeah, I would say on the track, which I competed in first in Sydney, I'd say that's, that's as high as you possibly get. It's akin to track and field or swimming or gymnastics, things like that, where it, it truly is the pinnacle, and you're, you're waiting for that every four years, and if you succeed in that, then you're golden. Um, the road is a little bit different, um, where you're coming out right off the heels of the Tour de France, where there's bazillion people every day either watching across the world on TV or literally on the, on the side of the road. Um, so that's a little bit strange. So in Beijing, when we came there, and in Beijing, they didn't even let any fans on the side of the road, which is very strange. So you're pretty much racing as hard as you can in silence, which was so strange right after you just finished on the Champs-Élysées in Paris a couple of days before that. Um, so I, I would say it's mid to high, but of course, if you win, I mean, it's it's about as good as you get. I mean, to be Olympic champion for the rest of your life, it's, it's still, even it is, so it's not the Tour de France. It doesn't have the same prestige. I, I'd put it right up there. So if you were Greg Van Avermaet, who won in in Rio, I mean, yeah, that, that's pretty cool to have in your resume. It's about as, as high as you're going to get. What were those experiences like for you in Sydney and in Beijing? The Sydney was pretty rough. Yeah, I, I just had a lot of problems uh, with my back that year, and, and, and so I didn't have great form. So it was uh, a little bit of an empty feeling going there. When you, when you know that you're not at your your peak physical form, even though you haven't made the team and you are an Olympian, you want to give it your best, especially representing your country. Um, Beijing, I was great. I had really good legs and I felt great, but I just missed that, that move right at the last second. So I, I have some, uh, a, a little bit of, uh, in the back of my head, what I could have done better. And, and that's never a great way to go out either. Um, but I was happy with my performance there. So it, that was a lot better on the road in Beijing. D- does that go away with time? I, I mean, when, when you get, uh, you know, further away from, from those games and you think about it, you think, wow, I was, I was an Olympian and maybe I shouldn't focus on all the negative. Or does that negative just kind of linger and, and stick with you? <laughs> every once in a while. Just, you know, it lingers every once in a while. It comes up. But no, it, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous coulda, woulda, shoulda situation where, you know, you need to let that go. <laughs> Especially since the COVID is away. Yeah, you need to let that go. And, uh, you know, you have to 
really think that you put your best foot forward on that day, and um, yeah, there's no going back. When you look back at your career, you retired, I believe, in 2013. What what are some of the things that you're most proud of, and some of the things that you point out to people? Personally, uh, some of the biggest ones were, were really. Uh, working with my teammates um, when the, the team really came together really well, um, winning the team overall at the Tour de France in 2011, um, coming fourth individually in the Tour in 2008, and then really one of the biggest ones is uh, winning the, helping win the, the Giro d'Italia with my teammate Ryder Heisdell in 2012. So a lot of it has a little bit of, of both, the team aspect and coming together as one, um, on a professional team, and, and of course, you know, doing something for yourself is, is a great feeling as well. We know that the the sport itself has uh, gone through some turbulent times over the last decade or so. Lance Armstrong and doping really a- across the the uh, the entire sport. Uh, you uh, as well were were pulled in with uh, with a six month ban at one point. Um, wh- seven years later, eight years later. I mean, what are your thoughts on on that time frame? Um, just just kind of you know, where are you at and your thoughts about cycling at that time and, and kind of where cycling was at and where it's at now? Yeah, no, it was a horrible time and, and the culture, and that's really what, what it was. It was just the culture within the sport um, that you didn't think that you could compete without and you probably couldn't. Um, and it turned the page, ironically, way before um, everyone came to light here in the United States. And we had come, turned that corner and the culture within the that no one wanted to do that. You don't start riding your bike because you wanted to have a needle on your arm. So I think a lot of those things happened within the sport, and especially with Team Slipstream, the American team that I started with in 2008. We were open and honest with everybody. We were open book to everyone. I posted all my blood values before anyone asked me in Sports Illustrated and Outside Magazine. So those were the kind of the big steps that were taken inside the sport, and I'm happy to have left it a thousand times better than when I first came to it in 98 as professional. So, yeah, I think it's great. There's always going to be standouts. There's always going to be somebody who takes that risk. Um, and, and ironically now, uh, the return you get on those risks is higher because the sport is so clean. So, But there's always going to be somebody out there who does that and tarnishes the reputation of others who are doing it the right way, unfortunately. But I think as a whole, it's a thousand times better, like I said, than 20 years ago. Has American cycling uh, turned the page? I mean, the way we view it as the public, I mean, I think that there's always going to be kind of that stench that goes along with it after what we saw, as, as Major League Baseball had for a long time, right? I mean, uh, are we ever going to be able to turn the page as as a viewer and, and kind of make that move, or is it going to take a few more years? Um, I don't know if it's... You know, it's a lot of it is, is media, and, and a lot of it is, you know, is, is testing. We're the highest tested sport in the world. You know, if there's no testing, there's no issues. You know, so if you want to talk about all the American sports and the differences in between is, you know, when I have a, the testers coming out on Christmas Day to my house for blood and urine, you know, that, that's not normal for most professional sports with, you know, a, a strong players union. So it, it's always going to be hard, and a lot of that is just, uh, a lot of it is media, and it, it is hard to turn that page. But I do believe that the young riders are going in today, they, don't, they aren't even having this talk around the dinner table. This doesn't even come up. It's a lot of the conversation that unfortunately gets brought up in the media time and time again. But like I said, there's always going to be those standouts. There's always going to be some, a bad apple here and there, like there is in, in, in life. Um, but I really think that they have turned the page a long time ago, and even before there was a decision in uh, 2013. So you're you're a cycling analyst now for NBC Sports, is that correct? 
Yeah, I, I love the job. It's it's completely different to see to be on the other side of the barrier. I, I like being on the other side of the barrier, and I like still being involved in the sport. Um, it's my passion. I absolutely love it. I love trying to put myself in the position of the guys out there and watching how, how, how fast they go and, and still in awe of what they do out there on the roads. Well, what are some of the storylines? What are the, some of the things that you are looking at as we head into Japan in 2020? Are there any uh, American figures or even international figures whose uh, names we may know more about uh, uh, come July or um, any kind of storylines we should be uh, keeping an eye out for? I'd say in general, the best thing to say right now is just the youth. I mean, how young these guys are who are winning the Tour de France or winning the World Championships. But that That's what I'm just so shocked at, of the maturity level, both physically and mentally, of a lot of these young young men out there, and women for that matter, racing. Um, sometimes the women are a little bit more mature. They come into maturity a little bit later. But same thing with Chloe Digert, one of the, the world champion from America is incredible. And the amount of talent that she has is really unprecedented. So I think she's going to be one of the biggest storylines going forward. So that'd be American Chloe Dyer. And then on the men's side, he's a young uh, Vanderpool who cycle cross racer. He'll be going for the mountain bikes. But, you know, 22 year old Egan Bernal winning the Tour de France, I, I don't even understand how that's possible. <laughs> just to have the poise and not just the physical cap- the capabilities, but the mental capabilities to really to keep it together. For 21 days out there on the roads in France and, and foreign ground, being the first Colombian ever to win the Tour. I saw that uh, the Madison is a is an event, and that's coming back. What what is that? The Madison is a two person event on the track. It started in Madison Square Garden in New York City, um, which is really ironic, just because we don't really have a strong cycling passion in the United States at all anymore. It's more European based for the most part. But in turn of the century, the six day races in in the United States were absolutely massive. So, you know, we had Madison Square Garden was a big hub. Chicago was absolutely huge. I think it was the second event in the Chicago Stadium was a six-day bicycle race. Um, so the Madison is a two-person event. So you sling your, your partner in with a hand sling. So you're coming up on your partner. He's coming down the track. You, he puts one arm out. You grab his hand and throw him in. And then you decrease your speed while he's racing until he meets you again. It's it's very hard to explain. It's, it's a little bit easier to explain when, when the race is actually going on, but it's a 40-kilometer event, so 160 laps of the track, and there's intermediate sprints throughout, and so it's a points, points race more or less to, to the finish line, so the most points wins, and you could also try to gain a lap uh, and try to lap your opponents. Um, fantastic race to watch. A lot of action, some spills and thrills, high speed, um, averaging up and over 30 miles per hour for the for the course of the race. Um, so I'm really excited to be calling that race. It will not be easy to call, but it'd be, it'd be fun. Is it tough fighting for time against, you know, Team USA basketball and, and uh, baseball has been implemented, gymnastics? I mean, some of these bigger sports, even swimming. I mean, you're, you're essentially fighting for the sport uh, for TV time during mm-hmm. the Olympics, right? Oh, totally. But it's 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 amazing the algorithm that they go and have all these sports going on at the same time. And NBC has so many different channels that, that stream them through, whether it be CNBC or just different channels that you didn't even didn't even know that Comcast owns. Um, 
playing live sports, I, I think the biggest problem we're going to have is just the time zone. You know, 13 hours difference from East Coast to Tokyo. Um, that's not going to be easy to get everything. And, and where are you going to put that and see in marquee? Or you know, have to be on your DVR really strong if you want to watch something because it might be coming on at live at 2 o'clock in the morning, depending on where you live in the United States. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how they do everything. But but as, as far as you know, competing for time on the big screen, it's, it's really, if you have a good storyline, if we do have a Chloe Dagger from the United States doing well, you know she's going to be there in, in prime time. So hopefully we'll get to see some of those great stories come to fruition. Have you heard or seen any of the venues, heard about them at all in Japan? A little bit, not not too much. Um, They're so going to be ready? That, that's a yeah, they should be ready. Well, let's just put it this way. They're a thousand times more prepared than we were this time going into Rio. So that's that's a good thing. Um, I, think that, I think it's going to be a spectacular event, as usual. Uh, did I read that you are one of the cycling instructors for Peloton? I am. So how, how does that work? I don't have one, but people can dial you up? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do uh, the classes so often. So I, I go up there once a month. I do two classes live and then you get that cookie go on demand so you could go and pull up any of the classes that i've done even if it's from years ago um and pull those up and, and do that workout it doesn't matter what as long as you have a, a wi-fi connection in your house you could, you could do those um but it, it's an amazing platform you could, you could get out there and, and i could see everyone in my class taking it live and i could see all their statistics of how hard or how easy they're going and i could see where they're from how many rides they've done uh, and some of the numbers these days are spectacular. I mean, I just talked to one of my coworkers, Matt Wilpers, out there, and he's having 2,000, 2,500 people live wow. throughout the, the world, wherever they have a, a Peloton bike. So it, it's, it's amazing to see where Peloton has come from the first time I went there in 2013 to where it is now and how many people just come up to me. He had no idea that I was professional or not too much of an idea of what I did actually on the road in the Tour de France and one thing like that, that they know me as a Peloton instructor. It just blows my mind. <laughs> Do you yell at people? Oh, of course. You mean, <laughs> part of it is, is, you know, part of it is entertainment, of course, and part of it is, is really just inspiring people to push themselves farther than they thought they could. You know, whether it's somebody who's just trying to get in shape or someone who's who already has been in shape and really wants to push themselves to the next level. So uh, I bring something to the table that's unique on the Peloton. Some of the Peloton instructors aren't, bike riders most of them aren't bike riders but you know they're very fit um and they they know how to inspire people to to go harder and i i just bring that a little bit more acute background of just focusing on exactly where you need to be in power and and maybe pushing them a little bit hard at times but my my classes are pretty darn hard i almost would not take my class at that time so people i give the people what they want they want to be hurt so i give it to them it's it's an interesting sport because we all learn how to ride a bike as a kid right but then you you make that mm-hmm. jump into into riding competitively how how do people go through that process because kids are going to be watching these olympic games coming up uh, you know for the first time and say hey i can ride my bike you know what i'm going to take it out to the the track and i'm going to i'm going to start this i'm going to push myself i mean i i watched the 96 olympics and i thought that you know like hey how, how you know obviously there's a lot of training involved but it's something i can i can do it's something i can practice how do you recommend uh kids or even young adults kind of making that next step and getting into to competition nationwide uh there's a a program called nica which starts at 12 years old all the way through high school and that's been a massive boon for younger riders in cycling so it's it's mountain biking and there's a a closed course you don't the parents don't have to worry about traffic or 
horrible crashes out, out there on the road where they can't go and help their kids out. Um, we're seeing 25,000 new athletes coming in every year, and that those numbers just keep on rising. So that's been a, a big boom for cycling right now. It's really just a matter of keeping them in the sport. Locally in Chicago, the way I got my start was going up to the track in Northbrook. Uh, obviously, I'd always been riding with my dad and following with my great uncle and grandfather. So I knew a lot about the sport, but for me to actually get out there and, and test myself, it was both the Criterium and Downers Grove and then going out and, and racing around Northbrook Velodrome. Um, it was, it, I like that the most, and, and that's truly what we have. Because like you said earlier, we don't have mountains. We don't have awesome roads out there. We, the weather's not great most of the time, but we do have a great Velodrome that's pretty easy to get to right there in, in Northbrook. And it's done by the... The park district up there, and, and that's that's really where I, I got my start and where I really embraced it and started loving what I did. Where could people follow you? Are you on social media at all? Are you active? Yeah, I'm definitely active. I have a, a Twitter handle and a Instagram handle. I'm a little bit more active on Instagram these days, especially during the season. Um, that's just Christian BDV. We want to thank Christian for joining us. And yes, if you were wondering, he is related to WGN radio reporter Mary Vandeveld. Next week on Quest for Gold, we're talking men's volleyball. I'm Ryan Burrow with Quest for Gold at WGNRadio.com.